young Christians, little theologians, do you have enemies? Do any of you have an enemy? Someone that doesn't like you or someone that you don't like? I want you to think, is there somebody that's an enemy? It might be your brother or your sister. Sometimes they might feel like enemies, even though they love you and you love them. Sometimes it might feel like they're enemies. Who's your enemy? I had an enemy. I actually had lots of enemies. My enemy, his name was Monty McDuffie. He lived two streets up from me, and he was the, the, the neighborhood bully. One time, Monty was so mean that he got another kid that was in my grade, his name was Philip, to, he talked him into jumping me after I got off the bus one day from school. So I walked off the bus one day, and there was Monty standing aside, not doing anything, and Philip who jumped me and started just pummeling me. And that day, I happened to bring a friend home from my class. It was super embarrassing because I got the tar beat out of me. That was Monty, and he was my enemy. Who's your enemy? By the way, I, uh, I'm not a, I wasn't a good kid either. I didn't just take it. and I jumped Philip a few days later when Monty wasn't there. You shouldn't do that, kids. <laughs> All right, so I want you to think about your bully. I want you to, or your enemy, and then I want you to uh, draw a picture of what you want to do to that enemy. Now, that's a scandalous thought, maybe, to think about that. But what would you like to do to the person who's your enemy? Because I think that there, uh, Paul is trying to help us, the Bible's trying to help us today uh, to confess and take these things to the Lord. So I want you to think about that. I want you to talk to your parents, ask them if they have enemies and who their enemies might be. And then I want you to listen in the sermon for how we're supposed to love our enemies. All right, with that, let's turn our attention to Romans 12. Remember, this is the second half of the sermon we started last week that I decided not to finish. But Paul, remember in the context, everybody, of Romans chapter 12, he is calling the church in view of God's mercy to offer their bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, what that might look like for us and you is loving your enemy. Like, what I want you to hear this morning is that the very offering of your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, because God has shown you mercy, and he has set his mercy on you, and as a result of that, you offer your bodies back to God as a gift of mercy to your enemies. And the challenge of that is great one, right? But the very ethic, remember, is of Christianity is love. Love is essential to whatever Christianity should be. And Paul tells us that love should be genuine without hypocrisy. It is to be true. And so today, we're talking about truly loving the other, truly loving your enemy. Now, before we do that, I want us to consider what makes someone an enemy. What makes someone an other, an outsider? I'm going to fast forward here through some of these, maybe. You might have to help me, Titus. Because All right. So what makes someone an enemy and outsider? So Paul really kind of tries to lead us through this here in Romans 12, right? So what does an enemy do? Well, they persecute you, right? 
They treat you differently for who you are or what you believe or what you do. They persecute you. Monty McDuffie persecuted me. Just a kid on his block. We actually used to swim together in my backyard when we were four years old. Like, it's a total 80s movie, right? Like, I'm a Gen X kid, love the 80s, best decade of human history other than Jesus' time. Um, But it sounds like that, right? Monty McDuffie persecuted me. He treated me differently because of whoever I was. They curse you. An enemy persecutes you and an enemy curses you. An enemy doesn't rejoice with you. When you have reason to rejoice, they don't rejoice. In fact, they, and they don't weep with you when you weep. Now, I want you to think about that even today in the environment that we're currently living in this week. The call to weep with those who weep. Are you someone weeping with those who are weeping this week? Because in a friend, a, someone who loves genuinely, weeps with those who weep. And rejoices with those who rejoice. An enemy doesn't do that. They're haughty. They think they're better than you. They do evil to you. Now, that could be the perception as well, by the way. They think these things towards you, not just they act towards you. What about you? Because you and I do this too. We persecute, and we curse, and we don't rejoice, and we don't weep, and we're haughty, and we think we're better than other people, and we certainly do evil. The starting point this morning is recognition of how you treat the other as other. Like, that's the starting point. That not just that something's done to you, but that you do these very things too. Even as David reminded us, even if it's just in our hearts. It's also the starting point to remember that you were once the other and that Christ brought you in. And if Christ showed you mercy, then the ethic in response to that is to be a people who love the outsider, truly. So that leads us to the next point, How do you love them? Verses 14 and 17 to 21 kind of articulate this. First, by blessing them and not cursing them. In verse 14, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Paul understands the climate of his day, a day where he himself has been persecuted for following Jesus. He understands that the Jews who make up this church in Rome have returned to Rome following being banished by the emperor of Rome. He understands that the civil religion of Rome will no longer tolerate Christianity. And notice how Paul begins talking about love here. He grounds it in the love of Christ, who, from the cross, blessed those who cursed them. The ethic that establishes this call in verse 14 is the Christ who on the cross asked the Father to forgive them, forgive us, for we know not what we do. How hard is that? When you have been persecuted or even have the impression or the threat of persecution, go to your car. And someone 
cuts you off or takes the right away or doesn't acknowledge you. That's not even actual persecution. But you feel like your right, your way has been taken. How do you respond even in the simplest of moments? How hard is it to bless when you've been cursed? When someone is calling down curses on your name, when someone says those words to you and to your face, what, is the, what do you want to do when that happens? It's hard. Bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being in view. Willing to risk further pain in our souls in order to be the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. How can you bless when you're persecuted? Only because you have been boldly loved by Christ and maybe by another person who exemplified Christ can you then boldly love others by moving humbly into their world with their well-being in view, willing to risk pain that comes from it. And there is an aroma of life for some people who see that. But there's also an aroma of death when they say, how can you do that? You are letting yourself become a doormat. How are you going to do this? Well, Paul, earlier last week, we talked about how Paul calls us to love the church. He calls us to love our community with this love that hopes and waits and prays. The only way to press in with a bold love to bless when persecuted, to bless when cursed, is in this idea of that outward to inward. You have been impacted by God's love outwardly to your inwardly and changed from the inward so that you can love from the inside outside. To try to drum this up on your own accord will always result in you either being haughty or being the opposite of that, having false humility, which is a form of haughtiness. We are called to bless. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that in Rome, a hundred, um, nearly 25% of the entire Roman population died. And what happened was, is that this furthered up Roman uh, devotion to the gods. They felt like the gods were angry at them, and so the leaders of the day and the emperor said, hey, we need to be more dedicated to our gods. And so they instituted a bunch of policies in Rome for uh, uh, people to, be, to, to exhibit their devotion, to offer sacrifices to the gods. What ended up happening is Christians wouldn't do that. And so they became the scapegoats. They became what the emperor and others blamed the plague on. It was because of Christianity. They wouldn't participate in the civil religion of Rome. Now, don't let this miss you this morning. Because the call today is very much similar in the sense that we are being called as the church to participate in our civil religion. Stamped with Jesus and Christianity. That doesn't look like Jesus or Christianity because it doesn't love enemies. And it seeks to find scapegoats in people. Now, what the Christians of this day, after Paul, after Paul preaches and sends this letter to Rome, they stayed in these afflicted cities. When the pagan leaders and physicians fled, 
They took in the sick, subjected themselves to plague, died themselves. This is the outworking of Paul's command. A hundred years later, and then it happened another hundred years at the next plague. What does it look like, church, for us to bless when persecuted? When you're maligned in the public square, in your jobs, even in your very home for your faith, what do you do? What should your response be? Paul says, if your love is genuine, then you will bless. You won't just bless, you will also live in harmony with others. What makes this particularly difficult is the kind of what we talked about three weeks ago. Our partisan minds get in the way. We don't associate with the other because the other is, in fact, other. Arthur Brooks uh, wrote a book about loving your enemies I spent some time reading it this week. Brooks spends time talking about what makes living in harmony with another so difficult. We think our enemies are truly other because our culture is overrun with contempt. Contempt, in a nutshell, is the eye roll. Right? You ever sit across from someone and they say something and you're so turned off by it, you just roll your eyes. It's disgust. The marriage counselor, John Gottman, said he and his team could figure out if a marriage was going to make it in the first five minutes of a session based on contempt. If there was regular and present contempt, then most likely the marriage was already nearly over. If it, is, it isn't just that we have contempt, by the way. It's that we demand contempt. There's lots of cases where people demand something they hate. If you've met someone who has a problem with any number of things, drinking or food or anything, every morning they berate themselves for their lack of self-discipline and resolve not to do that thing today. And then when night rolls around, they're filled with anxiety and cravings, and then they say, "Uh, I'll quit tomorrow. That's addiction, right? Addiction clouds our ability to make long choices in our own interests. Economists carve out a special sort of demand for addictive things. They note that we make decisions that are deeply suboptimal in the long run because the pain of breaking a habit is so high in the short run. Therefore, we really wish we didn't drink, but we put off the discomfort of quitting day after day. Now, our world is addicted, Brooks says, to contempt. While most of us hate what it's doing to our world and worry about how contempt coarsens our culture over the long term, many of us still compulsively consume the ideological equivalent of meth from officials, academics, entertainers, media. Millions actively indulge their habit by participating in a cycle of contempt in the way they treat others. This is true on social media and other places. We wish our national debates... We're nutritious and substantive, but we have an insatiable craving for insults of the other. That's us. That's what makes it so difficult to know and still love. Not only do we have contempt, but we're addicted to the contempt, and we continue to feed our addiction to contempt. 
Paul says, live in harmony with the other. Notice he doesn't say, win the other over. He doesn't, say, he doesn't place it in the bounds of cultural power or position. He calls us to live in harmony. Harmony is the accent to the melody. It's the texture. The call for the Christian who has received God's mercy is to place yourself in a position of submission to the other. This is the refrain of this text. In response to all this, Brooks offers a lot of strategies to maybe do this. Includes empathy, which Paul talks about earlier in our chapter. It includes not being haughty, considering others better than yourselves. He also quotes Jesus. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, don't miss this. Our time is a time when civility to the other is considered complicity. And persecution will come not just from the enemy, but even from the friends that you have when you are civil to the other. Brooks says the following, it's on the screen, I want something more radical and subversive than civility and tolerance. Something that speaks to my heart's desire. I want love. And not just love for friends and those who agree with me, but rather love for those who disagree with me as well. This is the ethic. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 12. True Love lives in harmony with the other. True love blesses those who curse and persecute you. How do we do that? Well, Paul says, don't be haughty. Right? The implication here, Paul is trying to help us understand, how do we live in harmony with each other? Well, well don't be haughty. Don't, be, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. 19th century urban preacher Charles Spurgeon said, it is always easier for us to want to purify other people and attempt a moral reformation among our neighbors. Yet, how much have I helped to make my neighbor, my enemy, the other, what he or she is? If she is what she is, how much of this is a result of me not being what I should have been? Spurgeon here makes the connection of all of us are complicated, all of us are messes, all of us are sinners, and so humility is the only and best and rightful practice. And Paul is calling the church in Rome to do just that. In a time where there is deep-seated tension between Jew and Gentile, like it's, don't miss this, The, the, the tension between Jew and Gentile in Paul's day is just as deep-seated as the tensions in our day between whatever binaries we exist in. He does not let down the hammer of this. He continues to bring it with the force of Thor. Because you have been given mercy as enemies. He goes, associate with the other. Never be wise in your own sight. How are you going to live in harmony? You're going to associate with the other. You're going to spend time with those who are other. Intentionally, purposefully, not to win the war, but to be present to them and to love them truly. 
You are not to consider your wisdom being more wise than their wisdom. And for all the doers out there, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Get around people who are other. Who is your enemy? Who are the people you have contempt for? Who are the people that are difficult to love? Where knowledge of them leads you to recoil. Whether that is something they send you or something you read or some family gathering or some just idle chit-chat conversation where cards are laid down and they tell you what they truly think and in that moment, that knowledge of them causes you to want to go, oh, really? That's you? Like those are the moments where instead of withdrawing into absence, Paul and God is calling us to, in, to pursue with presence. The action is to move in empathy toward. You and those like you are not the wise ones. And if wise, the wisdom is a gift anyway, so there's no room for haughtiness in your wisdom. Thinking your stuff doesn't stink. Contempt is bred at the end of our noses, friends. And too many of us are like the Pharisee in Luke's gospel who prays, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We should be more like the tax collector, Jesus says, Luke tells us, who would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and says, God, have mercy on me. Now, Luke says a sinner. Our translation is a sinner, but it's actually the definite article, the. I am the sinner. This is the stuff that breeds empathy and harmony and blessing towards those who persecute us. This is what helps us to genuinely love our enemies. I am the sinner. I am the one who needs mercy. I am the one who received it. You gave me mercy seeing me in my helpless estate. If I needed mercy and received it even as an enemy, then I give it, and the only way I can give it is by receiving it. And that gives us the movement to the next. How do we truly love each other? By not repaying evil with evil. We refuse to inflame a fight with people. But more than that, we also take the initiative and active positive peacemaking. That's the meaning of 1221. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with the good. Now, there's all kinds of nuances here. There are times when we have to distance ourselves from those who have done evil to us for all manner of reasons. But there are many, many occasions when we distance ourselves unnecessarily and simply don't forgive and don't seek restoration. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of love. We don't just love our friends. We love our enemies. This is what it means to be a Christian. I am persuaded as the older I get, it's one of the major areas that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He gives us a sense of conviction when we are out of relationship with people, when there's been fallout, and he calls us to move towards them, to respond, to repent, to repair. And maybe there's someone in your life right now who has treated you poorly, that you need to forgive and move towards. Maybe you've made mistakes in a relationship, and the right move is presence to mend. I want you to listen to the promptings of the Spirit. We are to commune with the Lord and with one another. So instead of repaying evil with evil, we're to 
move towards with a, a positive peacemaking and reconciliation. And the good news is, the Lord, by his spirit, empowers you to do this. To continue to live in a place of non-forgiveness is to become bitter and resentful, which is a dangerous spiritual condition. Hebrews 12.15 asks us to not let the root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. The Lord is trying to save you and protect you from that root by calling you to live in harmony with each other and to not repay evil with evil. Feel superior to the person we resent. Because it, it gives us an excuse for indulging in exquisite plots of revenge, such as hurting a person by withholding our ultimate treasure, friendship, value. Friends, this is, not the way of the, this is the way of the world. It's not the way of love. And so that leads to the last point. How do you love the other by not avenging? Revenge is a di- dish best served cold. There's something about revenge. Some of our favorite stories, Count of Monte Cristo, movies like John Wick, superheroes like Batman. These stories scratch a very carnal and base desire we have to see people get what they deserve. Revenge is powerful. Something about the feeling of helplessness that we feel as victims and then the feeling of power that we feel when we take revenge. Paul understands this desire for power when we feel powerless and he continues to point us to Jesus. Jesus is how we are to sit into this moment. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. And even more than that, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. This is what we're seeing in the world right now, vengeance writ large. And it can only destroy us, even if the perpetrators truly do deserve it. Our best justice is still only proximate. We again lean into the gospel for real transformation. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The gospel also says he is coming again to make all things new. And we wait with him in patience. Marilyn Robinson says, It seems to me people tend to forget that we are to love our enemies, not to satisfy a standard of righteousness, but because God the Father loves them. And the best way of vengeance is to give our enemies over to God. Not so that he will get them, but so that he will, they might know his love. The burning coals on the head is the undoing of contempt and hatred. It's love purifying them. Your love to them by blessing them and feeding them and clothing them. When they're your enemy is a purifying act that God intends to use to bring them to himself. True love is not overcome by evil, but true love overcomes evil with the good. I want to finish with this illustration. One place to, I think, look is the African-American church. They have time and time again modeled for us this sort of overcoming evil with the good. In 2019, Brant Jean uh, chose to forgive the killer of his older brother, Botham. Botham was shot, killed horrifically in his own apartment, by an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger. Geiger was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. 
In uh, his victim impact statement offered to Geiger in the courtroom, Brandt chose to offer forgiveness to Amber. It's truly one of the most powerful and heart-wrenching scenes you will witness. This is him hugging her in the courtroom, offering her forgiveness. When this happened, many were critical of Brandt's actions. Some said he was forgiving her too soon. Others felt that Christians expect forgiveness without a cry for justice. An African-American church member said the following, Many in my community don't like it because they justly feel that black people have given too much and have been discriminated against too long. Even I couldn't understand why he hugged her until I remembered what the young man said. I have forgiven you. Is that what it looks like? It seems to be something from a different world. That's exactly what it is. It's something from another world. Offering love and forgiveness and compassion to the very person who brought such horror and pain to your life. And not only for his personal peace, but for the cause of Christ and the glory of God. That's why Brandt said he did it. This is the kind of forgiveness, this kind of forgiveness will always bring resistance with it. Why? Because it appears to be weakness and it appears to forget justice. But it isn't weakness what the gospel... uh, Embracing weakness is what the gospel calls us to do. And when we embrace it, we find the supernatural power of Christ. Power to forgive in devastating circumstances. How? Because Brant Jean's hope is not in some power of revenge. His happiness is not found in Geiger's misery. It doesn't need to be because he has hope beyond this life. And what looks like weakness to the world can actually be a witness to the greatest power in the world, the power to love your enemy. At the cross, God's demand for righteousness and justice was satisfied in the death of Christ. Every sin forgiven, every crime absolved, the propitiation allows God to deal with us with restorative justice, not punitive justice. And his first move is not to destroy us and with us our sin, but to restore us and lift us up and make us righteous, which is exactly what Brandt did in the courtroom. It's important for us this morning to understand restorative justice. Restorative justice seeks reconciliation, and it demands restitution. That will lead to next week when we talk about the government. In Romans 13, restorative justice rejects revenge while seeking what's best for the community, which may be a guilty verdict or a prison sentence. And so forgiveness doesn't negate justice. Without forgiveness, restorative justice could not occur. Such high-stake forgiveness should not lessen our cry for justice, but remind us there's still much to be done, especially in our world today. And the truth is, if we wait to forgive until human justice has occurred, we will never forgive. Human justice will always fall short at best and completely fail at worst. But God's perfect justice, demonstrated in the person and work of Christ on the cross, allows for those who claim Christ to both forgive and to seek justice, to love mercy while doing justice, to leave vengeance to the Lord, and to overcome evil with the good. This, friends, is the love That's the way of Jesus. It's what offering your bodies 
as a spiritual act of worship because you've been changed by the mercy of God looks like. Loving truly, truly loving this community and truly loving your enemies. May God animate us by his spirit to do that work. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us, especially today. Today, while it's called today, that we would move towards one another and towards our enemy, towards the other. That you would convict us of all the ways we treat the other as other. There's many ways even here in our church that we do this. God, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our haughtiness and our pride, for my pride and my haughtiness. Forgive us for considering ourselves better than others. Forgive us for the ways that we seek to overcome the good with evil. Forgive us, Lord. I am the sinner. We are the sinner. And we cry out for your mercy. And that as you give it, God, we pray that you would change us by it. Help us, God. Help us. In a world full of violence, help us, Lord, not to answer violence with violence, but to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you. Animate us, God, by your spirit to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.